Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Trashy Divorces. End of season three. It is the end of season three. We love our finales because we get a little weird. We do get a little weird. It's host choice. Mm-hmm. So podcast no rules. Mm-hmm. But first, before we talk about podcast no rules today, I want to say thank you to all of y'all who are listening to us right now and your sweet little ears for listening to us, giving us a chance and making this podcast a thing. We love you. We love the community that's building. We are so grateful that you invite us into your audio experience every single week and are humbled and grateful and y'all rock. It's pretty great. It's it's really... Thank you. Yeah. Happy season three finale. And to you, dear listener. Leave it on a jet plane. It's mm-hmm. our episode title this week. Mm-hmm. Good song by John Denver. Sure is. Some people think all kinds of other people wrote that song. Peter, Paul, and Mary, Cass Elliot. Not true. It's a John Denver song. Okay. Maybe an angel. Maybe a devil. I had a hero crush this week on mm-hmm. Podcast No Rules. Yeah, this one was hard for you. It was. I had a great old time with the grand old party. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. It's a fun episode. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and give a shout out to our new patrons on patreon yes we love you so much thanks everybody so much and i actually had somebody ask me this week like how do i get on patreon what is it and i kind of explained it but patreon.com slash trashy divorces will take you to a page where you can look at and hear all about all of our extra content and it's super fun We had so many cool new patrons this week to join us. Who do you have in your magic mirror? I have, and with tremendous thanks for joining us there, Susan, Sylvia R., Maida, Liz C., Abby, Cynthia F., Jess G., Melissa F., Jennifer M., Crystal, Freya H., Tracy, Maureen S., Suzanne O., Kathleen R., Jacqueline G., and Jessica A. Thank you, everybody, so, so much. Y'all are the best. We love you. And Alicia, what happened over on Patreon this week? A lot of fun stuff. We had a bonus divorce come out that was different. Mm -hmm. We had our friend Sarah come over and she is researching a book about one of Atlanta's most famous sons, Asa Candler Jr. Mm -hmm. But they're, this is the Candlers, the Coca-Cola money, big time Atlanta. We she came over and talked about just the most delicious little scandalish thing that happened to Asa Candler Sr., the founder of Coca-Cola. And this was back in the 1920s. Back right? in the 1920s. Yeah. And the relationship he had as a widower with a fine lady named An- Anisima Anis- de Bochelle. It was mm-hmm. amazing. It's it really this was like this epic con that took the nation's tabloid press by storm story. and then disappeared as quickly and like we're both we both lived in Atlanta a long time and we're both history buffs and we had never heard a word of this. It's Not a, a word. A, an incredible find that she has. So we kept this exclusive for our Patreon folks this week, but we'll open the link up for everyone to listen to. It's a great way you can try out patreon.com slash trashy divorces and that episode will be there all access for you, along with some other free stuff that we put out for you to give us a test out over there. Okay, next up, Trashy Tutors. In our continuing Trashy Tutors series, this week I covered the original 15th century princess and bad boy, Catherine of Valois and Owen Tudor. So these two actually begat, begat, begat the Tudor dynasty. Yeah, yeah, it took a minute, but they got there. 
And on Trashy Tidbits oh, we had this great week. great Trashy Tidbits. You cleaned um, up the kitchen sink with... Oh, I did. The stalking of Sandra Bullock. Uh, the, I don't know, elated... Retirement of elated, Tina Turner. Yeah, the elated retirement so of Tina Turner. Hey, some people named Palin are getting a divorce. And that has not escaped our notice because you guys have all tagged us. So good. So we talked about that a little bit too. <laughs> Season finale, all of season mm-hmm. three. So we take our week off, our customary season-ending week off. Woo! So we'll be back to you with season four on September 29th. Mm-hmm. Super excited about this coming season of Trash Candy. Technically means no podcast next Sunday, which makes us very sad. So we had an idea. It's a good idea. I hope I hope this works. I hope this is the I hope this is a good idea for you too, listeners. We want to bring to you listener letters trashier divorces so yeah we're hoping that you can i mean if you've got a family member with a trashy divorce if you had a trashy divorce if your ex is a dirtbag please change their names <laughs> but yeah let us know like share your stories and if we get enough of them we'll put a, an episode together for you yeah so many of y'all have your own near and dear trashy divorce story it's true and we've heard from we've heard from many of you some of them they're are, so good they're some yeah some are some are really sad, but a lot of them, there's a real humor. <laughs> so next Sunday, if you want to be the star of Trashier Divorces, send them to us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com. Please do be cautious to use some anonymity. Yeah, we won't use your full name. Don't worry. Let's finish the end of season three, Elephants on Parade. Elephants on Parade. And me and witnessing my heartbreak in actual real time. Yeah. Yeah, I it was it was hard to watch, not gonna lie. Podcast no rules. <laughs> Let's go go go. Oh, Stacy. Oh, Alicia. In anticipation of trashy politics coming this week, I think you got a little excited. I- and you're bringing us some elephants on parade. There's some, there's some elephants on parade. Look, we it's host choice. You can do whatever you want. Podcast, no rules. We are living in interesting times, and I, I don't think I need to tell you that. I think you know that. I think you know that's a curse. I think I may even have used that curse on the podcast before on a political episode. Not sure. We are living in interesting times. And one mark of the strangeness of these times is a unique historical event that is occurring on the Republican side of the aisle as we gear up for the 2020 presidential contest. I this podcast is called Trashy Divorces, so you probably have guessed what interesting thing ties all of the Republican contenders together. But you should bear in mind that the GOP has for decades now put an emphasis on family and stressed the need for policies that it says promote family values. We have, of course, covered such Republican family values crusaders as the serial adulterer, thrice-married Newt Gingrich, who continues to grift Americans of a conservative bent via frequent Fox News appearances. I don't think I'll ever be clean again after that episode. That was rough. (sighs) We can question these policies and the hardline evangelical ideology that produced them, but we really can't argue with the results. Now, as the 2020 Republican primary field takes shape, we have a situation where, at the time of this recording, 100% of the candidates from the Party of Family Values have been divorced. Are you serious? Yes. Uh, completely across the... Yes. Oh. Most recently, cats. Mark Sanford of uh, Appalachian Trail fame 
hopped into the race. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, was Bill Weld divorced? And indeed he was. We've actually had a lot of requests for Mark Sanford. So we this have. one's coming for y'all, friends. A little bit, a little bit. And he Whoa. may, he may, maybe, I'm not sure, this may be adequate, but he may get a fuller treatment in Trashy Politics over on Patreon at some point. I'm not sure. How many GOP presidential candidate hopefuls are there? Today there are four. Okay. It is certainly possible that others will hop in because... But 100% across the board, four out of four. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Never happened before. You could argue Ronald Reagan, of course, Republican and the only first and only so far, well, until Trump divorced president. Amazing, right? Just to fill fill younger listeners in who may not have that level of trash candy yet. Sure. You know, Ronald Reagan was married to Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. They got married. They were married for a very long time. But previous to that, Ronald Reagan was married to an actress named Jane Wyman. And previous to being a politician, Ronald Reagan was an actor. He sure was. So there's a little... Yeah. Y'all may know that. Y'all may not know that. Mm -hmm. I just like to fill things in. Context is good. Anyway, one could argue that his reelect in 1984 was the first time that 100% of the GOP field was divorced, but he did have token opposition. This is someone I had never heard of. This is amazing. All right. He faced token opposition in 1984 from a former Minnesota governor named Harold Stassen, who, no kidding, was the governor like in the 40s, and his last government post was in the 50s with Eisenhower. What? And this guy, this dude, this like old hand in the GOP. I'm going to take you on, cowhide. Well, he he ran in almost every presidential election from like 1964 or whatever to oh my God. 92, maybe. I don't know. Like he died at some point, but he was married all of his life to the same person, which means that only 50% of the Republican well, field that go. year. He won like 12,000 votes. In, oh the, my God. in the primaries. Like I'm sorry, was... I said cowhide, but that's not it. Ronald Reagan's Secret Service code name was Rawhide. Oh, I learned that this week. It wasn't it wasn't Jelly Bean? Jelly Belly? Something nope. like that? Rawhide. She was a big Jelly Bean fan. Oh, mm. to be a child of the Reagan years, which I was. Solidarity, sister. So here we are. Party of Family Values. 2020. Amazing. So after several decades of <laughs> decrying the state of the American family and attacking feminism and gay rights because they theoretically undermine patriarchal authority and not really theoretically. (laughs) The GOP is exclusively fielding candidates with a failed marriage or two behind them. Perfect. As our good friend Aaron says, they value family so much they decide to have more than one. (laughs) That was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) So this week I have decided to give a brief overview of all four is amazeballs. Current Republican presidential candidates. None of these are meant to be endorsements or non-endorsements. It's just sort of batting the weird ball of divorce around. Elephants on parade. Elephants on parade. Let's get into it. The incumbent, Donald Trump. So we covered the Donald and his mini-me, Don Jr., at the end of March in our season two opener. We did. Cats in the Cradle. I want to be like you. And you covered Senior, so let me know if this... Let me know if this quick recap kind of catches Sure the... thing, sure thing. Donald Trump married a Czech model named Ivana in 1977 and had three children with her. A decade or so into the marriage, he began what would become an extremely high-profile affair with a model named Marla Maples, with whom he had one out-of-wedlock daughter. So far, the story probably sounds very familiar to Southerners. Four kids, two baby mamas. He divorced Ivana. 
married Marla in 1993, a few months after their daughter was born, because reportedly his mom and daddy were mad. That marriage lasted about five and a half years before Donald toddled off to chase different models. In 05, he married a Slovenian model named Melania, with whom he had one son the following year. Persistent rumor out of the capital has it that Melania now lives in Potomac, Maryland with her parents, whom she sponsored for citizenship under family reunion policies, and her son. She is still legally married to the Donald. That sounds about right. It's 99% on point. <laughs> Let's not forget to mention that Marla Maples is a Georgia peach. She is. From our state. Also, you may want to rethink the he and Melania have a son. I'm not sure if he's aware of that, but she is. It has been a big week for a mother. Other than that, you are spot on. She does have a son together. <laughs> Go. Okay. Number two in our lineup of candidates, the patrician, Bill Weld. Oh, uh, Bill Weld. I actually love Bill Weld, but whatever. William Floyd Weld, Bill Weld seems to be his preferred name, comes from a very old school of fiscally conservative and socially liberal New England republicanism. His lineage includes a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he had an ancestor who graduated from Harvard, class of 1650. No way. Harvard opened in like 1636. That's so crazy. There have been 18 of his line who've graduated from Harvard, including wow. him. Okay, so it's one of those families. Uh, he was a U.S. attorney in the Reagan administration, was elected governor of Massachusetts in 91. He served two terms. Actually, he resigned before he got tapped for an ambassadorship. Whatever. He was elected twice is what I'm getting at. He was popular. Democrats Man liked of the him. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Here's, he's a Republican. Yeah. But Democrats really liked him because of his liberal ties, and he's I gotta, one of the people. Okay, check I'm this out. I'm not jumping ahead. Okay. Well, no, but here's a fun fact I learned researching this story. Uh, Alicia, talking about the state of Massachusetts. I know we've got people there, and like it's a really good state, and we love it, and Boston's wonderful. Oh, Massachusetts is lovely. How many Democratic governors do you think Massachusetts has had between Bill Weld's inauguration in 1991 and today oh which is almost 30 years i mean they're a pretty blue state I they're would, super blue state like governor's elections there every four years mm -hmm. like they are yeah. i don't know i mean at least two or three they have had one what mm -hmm. in basically the last 30 years really they only deval patrick who served from 07 to 2015 otherwise we have bill weld republican paul salucci republican jane swift republican mitt romney Democrat Deval Parker, and Republican Charlie Baker, the current wow. governor of Massachusetts. Massachusetts people, middle of the road. They really, it's weird. It is a, it is like a deeply liberal state, but when they come across a reasonable Republican that they can work with, they're like, come on, let me vote for you. So if you've got the bona fides as a Republican to compromise, yeah. maybe the level-headed people of Massachusetts are yeah, to, more to get in stuff done. than the rest of the country. Interesting. Yeah. Maryland also has uh, a very popular Republican governor right now. Huh. Okay, so Charlie Baker was just reelected in 2018, and he has had the highest approval rating of any governor in the United States for the last four years. Purple haze, man. Purple haze. <laughs> I'm thinking that's like going to come in handy at trivia one night. So there you go, listeners. That's fantastic. Fant like, Massachusetts haze. has had only one Democratic that's governor amazing. in the last 30 years, give or take. All right. Let's talk about Bill Weld's personal life. In 1975, he married a woman named Susan Roosevelt. 
those, those Rose- Roosevelt's. Wow. She's the great granddaughter of Theodore Teddy Roosevelt. No way. These are these are those people. That's some democratic bona fides right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. These are. I'm married are, to the granddaughter of Teddy Roosevelt. Well, Teddy was a Republican and then a bull moose, but it was a different. He was a progressive. Right, but he, as the party shifted through sure, the sure right, he was super pro- like the national park system was one of TR's. TR's your favorite president. A little bit, you yeah. Love him. I do. I, I do. know you got a little blushy there. Okay, so Susan Roosevelt is a China scholar. And at the time uh, that they married, she was a Harvard professor specializing in ancient Chinese civilization and law. She and Bill had five children. And one of Bill's early professional experiences was on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee's legal team during Watergate, where he worked with Hillary Clinton. Oh, And they were friends. Hell. Which is why Bill Clinton later tapped him for an ambassadorship when he was president. It all comes around. This is a different... I know. It's a different... It wasn't long ago, but it was a different world in Purple politics. Haze, when everybody just kind of got along. Okay. Susan was his wife when Reagan appointed Bill, the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. He went after public corruption hard, which was very good for his reputation. For sure. Apparently, he never lost a case in that office. Whoa. He's that's like, impressive. Yeah, that doesn't happen. So she was beside him when he got promoted to Maine Justice, where he headed the criminal division. She stood by him when he resigned in protest in 1988 when various scandals erupted around the attorney general at the time. In 1990, she became a political wife, which apparently was not totally to her liking, but she campaigned with him in his successful bid to become Massachusetts governor. Wow. It was the 90s, so like the economy was amazing, and so the business community loved him. Sure. But he was also a serious and genuine backer of gay rights. He signed legislation. He signed executive orders. Like, he really, he meant it. He he wasn't just like, oh, yes, everyone should be free to do it. He was like, no, dude, no more discrimination. I'm going to accept gay marriages performed in states that are not Massachusetts. Republicans, get on board with Bill Weld. Dude, Bill Weld for president. Yeah, they did not. And then he also did normal Republican stuff like privatizing public services, which resulted in big layoffs. Uh, but sure. it was the 90s, and, like, you couldn't find, you, you couldn't turn around without landing a new job. Right. The 90s were a miracle, and I'm so sorry for everyone who came after. <laughs> the truth. The 90s were great. Um, okay, so he was elected with 71% of the vote. Whoa. In 1994, he carried the city of Boston. A Republican carried the city of... I think people misunderstand polarization in this country. All right. Bill decides to challenge John Kerry for the Massachusetts Senate seat in 1996. Kerry was already in the Senate. Sure. Susan was there. And when Bill lost that race, she helped him through it. I mean, you know, she was a wife. She was a good wife to him. They were a team. But he was not as good of a husband as what I think you're about to tell me. I am about to tell you. Oh. Apparently around 1999, Bill made the acquaintance of a writer for InStyle magazine. Mm -mm. And the two hit it off. Nobody. In June of 2000, the Boston Herald reported that the Weld marriage was on the rocks, that he and Susan had separated, and that he had moved into the same building as his 46-year-old girlfriend. One of Susan's friends was quoted in the piece saying, I don't think Susan was ever comfortable in the rough-and-tumble world of politics. Hers is a completely different orientation. She's an academic, right? She's a freaking China scholar, I'm sure. Sure. Okay, so... 
As heterodox as Bill Weld was in his version of republicanism, it turns out that Susan was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. When she left the polling place after casting her ballot in that 1996 Senate race that her husband lost, no, 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 no. she told waiting reporters only that she had voted, quote, for the sanctity of the ballot box. Ah, they were divorced in 2002, and Bill married his writer girlfriend, Leslie Marshall, in 03. Are they still married? They are. Okay. As far as I know, Susan has not remarried, but I also get the feeling that she prefers her Wikipedia page to not be super detailed. Sure. So. Wow. All right. That's... Yeah, he doesn't, as a Republican, go, like, he doesn't sound like the worst alternative. When I was growing up in Alabama in the 90s, and I would hear about the stuff he was doing in Massachusetts. It gave me great hope that like the GOP would work itself out in a very favorable way. It has not. <laughs> it has not. It has not. Okay. Number three. Next up. The insurgent. Oh. Joe Walsh. This is not. Is no. Not the guitarist from the <laughs> Eagles. This is not that Joe Walsh. This guy was a one-term congressman who rode the Tea Party wave into Congress in 2010, turned into a conservative talk radio host after losing re-election to Tammy Duckworth, and has basically been race-baiting ever since. Actually, really since 2010. Good times. It's like kind of what he's done in the public light. So he's one of those, like, Obama is a Muslim, Muslims have conquered Europe. One of those guys, he called Stevie Wonder, quote, another ungrateful black multimillionaire. What? When Stevie Wonder took a knee at a concert to protest police murdering black Americans. What a you weirdo. Don't, you don't come down on Stevie Wonder. Joe Walsh did. The hell is wrong with you, Joe Walsh? Oh, that's a fair question. Uh, just ahead of the 2016 election, when the emotions in the electorate were in no way running high, Joe Walsh tweeted out that if Trump lost, he'd be grabbing his musket. You in? He asked, I, let's grab our muskets, go do something. Elephants so, on parade. Very calm fella. Fun fact about Joe Walsh. He's a clown and an opportunist who's had quite a bit of legal trouble over the years. First, the clowning and the opportunism. Joe Walsh first ran for Congress in 1996 against an incumbent Democrat named Sidney Yates. Yates was 87 years old at the time. He'd been in Congress since... The founding of the country? I, a long, a long time. time. Walsh decided to take a two-pronged approach to his campaign. First, I think he engineered some publicity event where he paid the doorman at Yates's building $1,000 for being the first person to spot the representative in his district. Like, anyway, uh, you know, out of touch. Dick. Gone Washington. Like, whatever. Okay. Second, Walsh, who was 34 at the time, wanted to make Yates's age an issue, so his campaign rented a hotel conference room, invited Walsh's supporters, brought in a big cake, and threw a birthday party for Yates, which they bragged about putting all 87 candles onto the cake. What a dick! Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way that he positioned himself was also very interesting. It was a pretty liberal district. This Democrat had been in office, again, since the Stone Age. So old Joe tells reporters that he is no fan of that Newt Gingrich. He will disagree with him at the drop of a hat whenever he feels like it. Uh, Gingrich was the Speaker of the House at the time, of course. And Joe continued, I'm not some right-wing conservative. I think I'm the kind of Republican who can win because I'm open and tolerant. He was pro-choice. He backed gun control measures. 
He campaigned on a bike that year, which may have been a comment on his opponent's age and lack of vigor, a call out to environmentalists, or perhaps he just had a suspended driver's license. Not really sure. We'll get to that in a minute. But the long and short of it is that uh, most of what Joe Walsh 1996 and Joe Walsh 2010 have in common is a deep desire for the spotlight. And that's pretty much it. Wow. Yates beat Walsh 63 to 37%. Oh, good. I'm so glad that it turned out that way. Yeah. <laughs> I thought all of his machinations were going to work. They do in the end. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> well and, then, and then they don't. They, no, they don't in the end. They do for a minute. Okay. So 2010, we've talked about this, like big year for Republicans. Anyway, so by the time Joe Walsh finally got to Congress in the 2010 Tea Party wave, he was passing himself off as the farthest right-wing bomb thrower you could imagine. Dave Weigel, writing for Slate, called him, quote, the biggest media hound in the freshman class. And Walsh was saying on television in the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession, there shouldn't be any social safety net. This is crazy talk. Like, he was just one of those guys. He spent his tenure constantly accusing Obama of intentionally bankrupting the country. Yeah. It was a weird time. It was a weird time. It was a weird time. When he ran for re-election against Tammy Duckworth in 2012, he said in a debate, sitting next to her, I'm pro-life without exception. Understand, though, that when we talk about exceptions, we talk about rape, incest, health of the woman, life of a woman. Life of the woman is not an exception. You're a real class act, buddy. He's a real class act. Duckworth beat him. Good. And he's been grifting with his race baiting on right-wing talk radio ever since. Bad. He backed Trump strongly in 2016, but says that the... Of course he did. Of course he did, but says that the Helsinki summit opened his eyes. He just bowed down to Vladimir Putin and good old Joe Walsh. Okay, anyway. I I mean, somebody has a moral conscience Nope. I think he just sees a new avenue for grifting conservatives and has reinvented himself yet again. I mean. He, of course, is also divorced, the point of this story. He married his second and current wife in 06. He married his first wife, Laura, in 1987. They had three kids together. So she was around for the bike years. (laughs) And so much more. (laughs) Uh, They divorced in 2004. It seems like their marriage included a lot of money problems while Joe figured out what he wanted to do with his life, including a period of his life post-college where he moved to New York and or L.A. His bio, surprisingly, is not that clear. To study acting at the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. where I know. I know. And it turns out he, like, grew up a few miles from Kathy Griffin, who's one year older than him, and they were probably there at the same time. Anyway. Can you do me a favor and just post it note? Because I'm taking a larger implication to this. We have covered a numerous amount of political figures who have a first marriage where the wife supports their asses while they, quote unquote, find themselves, mm-hmm. figure out what New they're going to do. We've covered just a few of them, but there's a whole backside of them that just post-it note this for editing when we edit later. Remember, my first wife got me to where I was and let me find my fucking self. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yes. Okay, so according to Laura's 2011 suit to collect more than $100,000 in unpaid child support for their three sons. 
Family values. During their marriage, Joe Walsh could not hold down a job. He worked as a temp, as a social worker, as a part-time history professor at a community college, at some financial services companies, role not disclosed. He'd been late enough on tax payments that there were state and federal tax liens. He'd been sued and lost several times for unpaid debts or withholding money that he owed. His driver's license had been suspended over and over again for various infractions, and he is only eligible to hold high-risk insurance in Illinois, which is a state program for, like, at-risk drivers. <laughs> oh, my God. And it's super expensive, too. I, was, I looked it up. It, it's, wow. Okay. So, in April of 2012... Walsh announced with great fanfare that he and Laura had reached a settlement over the unpaid, I think it was like $117,000 total or something. So they've come to some agreement. It's 2012. Laura notably did not speak to the press about the resolution, and she did not release her own statement on it. Joe released one for both of them. Well, wasn't that nice? It's great. So Joe was seeking re-election that year, and it was not a secret in Chicago that he was a deadbeat dad. In fact, the settlement agreement reportedly includes a clause where Laura acknowledges that he was never a deadbeat dad. Problem solved. (laughs) Problem not solved, because not deadbeat dad Joe Walsh lost his seat in November. Oh. So January, he's out of a job. What do you think unemployed Joe Walsh did next, Alicia? Falls back on his acting skills. <laughs> um, th- possibly. Uh, okay, so in February of 2013, newly unemployed Joe Walsh goes to court and asks a judge to terminate his child support oh obligations because he doesn't have a job. No. Um, hopefully, super dad of the year Joe Walsh did not prevail in that claim. I couldn't find whether he did or not. This guy. Family values, man. Welcome to today's GOP. So, <laughs> I, I have so many questions. There's so much. How he, does this dude have enough clout to run now until he's just being a, a grifter going to grift? Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, just yeah. want to make sure I sum that up. Oh, he's met with Marine Le Pen oh, from the good. National Front in France. Perfect. He's met with uh, Modi from India. Like, he's... Weirdly tied in with the alt-right. He, he's not, to my mind, he's not like a notable alt-right figure, but he's really, grifter's going to grift. It's the classically trained Strasbourg school. Well, he can. He that can, makes you a professional. He can touch his finger to his tongue and hold it up to feel which way the wind is blowing. I. And I think to his mind, there's going to be a GOP after Trump, and he somehow wants to position himself at the vanguard hey big cheers to joe walsh guitarist from eagles (laughs) i hate to see any seo bounce back you're gonna get on this one friend we like your guitar playing sorry bud your wikipedia page does come up first it is true yeah got that okay got that that's far more far more notable american joe walsh guitar player we're done with 75 percent of our 100 percent of divorces who's left how come I'm not hearing about, is Trump just sucking up the air? Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't, None of these I, guys have a shot. At le- like, as of right now, four states, I believe, because primaries are controlled by the parties in the state. Sure. So four states have decided they're just not going to hold a presidential primary. Part, that's democracy in action. It saves them a ton of money. It's not like any of these people really represent 
any threat of beating Trump in Utah, you know, like it's that's just not going to happen. What's funny, though, is like polling in Utah in particular, Trump always polls lower than you would think, because apparently Mormons are shy about acknowledging that they like this like complete son of a bitch. I all right, let's get to the last 25% block 25% here. is in this nonsense race. The disappointed Mark Sanford, former governor. Oh, I forgot that's where we started. Carolina. Jesus, all of that was so trashy before. I'd completely okay. forgotten right. Mark Sanford. So let's be honest. I've been wanting to cover Mark Sanford since we had this harebrained idea for a podcast more than a year ago, and his jumping into the race this month was perfect timing. So... If you are having trouble keeping all these philandering Republican wannabes apart, Mark Sanford is the hiking the Appalachian Trail guy. He's the former governor of South Carolina who lit up the political world back in 2009 when, well, let's just say that there's a header on his Wikipedia page that reads, Disappearance and Extramarital Affair. (laughs) Don't have that. Not recommended by trashy divorces. That's proof you didn't live right, at least for a while. Okay, Mark Sanford was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, so he is technically Florida man. Perfect. Before his family relocated to the 3,000 acre, and I apologize that this term is still widely and casually used in the South, but his family purchased the Cusaw Plantation. Sorry about that. A big coastal farm in South Carolina that I think also hosts events like weddings and like it's, I think it's a, I think it is a working farm. It's also... An event space. A venue. Okay. It looks very pretty. I saw pictures online. South Carolina is a lovely country. It is. It is. Really, South Carolina is a beautiful state. And Cusaw Plantation was once owned by E.F. Hutton, who was the one-time husband of Marjorie Merriweather Merriweather Post, Post. who we covered before. Spiderwebs. And legend has it that Hutton gifted Cusaw Plantation to a stockbroker friend who introduced them. So. What the hell? Yeah. So, Jenny Sanford. We live in a very, very tiny world, don't we? We we really do. I mean, we think it's just the most colossal, hugest world ever, but it it's a very tiny world. Okay, crazier though, Jenny Sanford, Mark Sanford's wife, was originally Jenny Sullivan, and she actually grew up about 20 minutes from where Joe Walsh grew up. They had this like, big Irish Catholic family. They're the same age. And again, Kathy Griffin was like in between Holy them. Holy cat. They're all like 10. They're all like big Irish Catholic families. They're all 10 minutes away from each other. And they're all like a year apart. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. So spider webs indeed. There's your next pub question about the six degrees of separation between <laughs> yeah. Joe Walsh, Mark Sanford's wife and Kathy Griffin. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Luckily, uh, Jenny remarried last year. So there's no risk of her running into Joe Walsh and being like, oh, my gosh, we have so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny comes from money with Podcast a no rules. <laughs> Jenny comes from money with a grandfather who co-founded the skill tool like skill saws the SKIL you're joking I'm not I'm Jesus not she comes Christ. from money I mean like everybody in her background except for him as a lawyer they come from money Rushton Skakel senior brother of Ethel Kennedy. You are blowing is some, my mind I, right now. I don't know what their tie is, but they have some, their cousin, I don't know. They're somehow related. She herself went into investment banking, which is totally uh, what you do when you want to make money for a living. And in the 1980s, she met Mark Sanford at a beach party in the Hamptons. You have a look. You have I, a look on your face. My mouth is dropped. Okay, okay, just back up 20 seconds. Sure. 
Rushton Skakel Jr. married Ethel Kennedy, who is a Kennedy sister. It was on his property in Connecticut. The murder of Martha Moxley happened. Like, this is nowhere on a Trashy Divorces episode bingo card have we ever been able to cross off Skillsaw, (laughs) Roosevelt, (laughs) Harvard class of 1651, Rushton Skakel, Purple Fucking Haze. This is a podcast no rules you oh, yeah. are blowing i'm the maxell dude right now yeah yeah yeah, trash yeah. Candy. okay i'm just gonna dark I'm sunglasses sorry. hair blowing back yeah this is amazing all right so again so they meet uh she meets mark sanford at a beach party in the hamptons she said it was not love at first sight but it was friendship at first sight okay and the when- hamptons is pretty it'll do a number on you they married in 1989, and when she was in the hospital following the delivery of their second of four children, Mark told her he was going to run for Congress. <laughs> okay. Okay. So she- I just gave birth to baby two, mm-hmm. and this and is your new big idea? And there's a 15-month-old at home. Perfect. And now you're doing what? Okay. But she managed his campaign in 94 for Congress. He won. And it seems like plenty of people who knew the couple have always viewed her as the brains behind the operation. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, But hey, I'm sure his 2020 race will go great. So in 2002, he won South Carolina's governor's race and became the 115th governor of the state and eventually the best traveled as well. (laughs) So he was in Congress for six years, I think. Just so I kind of jumped ahead there, but... He was reelected in 06, which brings us to the heady days of June 2009, where reporters in South Carolina noticed that the governor had no events scheduled and there was no explanation for why no one had seen him for a couple days and then three days and then where in the world is Mark four Sanford? days. On June 22nd, Jim Davenport of the Associated Press wrote an article titled Governor Gone for Days. Staff says he's hiking. Describing the state of confusion in Columbia, South Carolina, the lieutenant governor did not know where the governor was. Jenny Sanford said she had not spoken to him for several days. His spokesman finally announced that Sanford, whom he described as an avid outdoorsman, had gone hiking on the Appalachian Trail. The spokesman would not say where the governor had joined the 2,200-mile trail and whether anyone was hiking with him, only that he was expected back later in the week. The piece noted that certain very significant entities report only to the governor like state law enforcement and the National Guard. The lieutenant governor said he had not been put in charge and did not know where the governor was and could not get an explanation. It was this weird mystery that just kind of percolated for several days. Was the governor okay? Had shenanigans happened? Had he been kidnapped? Like, he hadn't even called home for Father's Day. (sighs) Yeah. What? So let's take a minute and applaud the efforts of local newspapers everywhere and maybe have a moment of silence for their passing. The uh, daily newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina is The State, and The State sent a reporter named Gina Smith to Hartsfield Atlanta International Airport to see what she might see. (laughs) Sorry. What she saw? You just said that cute. Okay. What she saw was Mark Sanford exit a gate from... A plane from landing from Argentina. Oh, 
Sanford, I'm just going to read parts of her article. Sanford, in a brief interview with the state in the nation's busiest airport, said he decided at the last minute to go to the South American country to recharge after a difficult legislative session in which he battled with lawmakers over how to spend federal stimulus money. Sanford said he had considered hiking the Appalachian Trail, an activity he has enjoyed since he was a high school student. But I said no. I wanted to do something exotic, Sanford said. It's a great city. I wonder what his trail name is. <laughs> now I'm like seriously curious. I wonder if we can find that out. But wait a minute. So he doesn't go hiking on the AT after all? No. He takes off to Argentina? He drove to... But he is the fucking governor and doesn't have enough like sense to call second in charge, third in charge, his wife. Anybody leave a post-it note? Be back gone fishing? Be back in a week? He drove a state SUV to the airport in Columbia, South Carolina, and it was found, like, people found it, and we're like, oh, okay, the governor a murder got victim? to the airport. Yeah, right? I. It was a mystery. Sanford said he had been to the city of, I guess, Buenos Aires. Like you do. Twice before, most recently about a year and a half ago, during a Commerce Department trip. Sanford said he was alone on the trip. He declined to give any additional details about what he did other than to say he drove along the coastline. Gina Smith. Oh, I bet he did. Gina, <laughs> Gina uh -uh. Smith adds, trying to drive along the coast could frustrate a weekend visitor to Argentina. In Buenos Aires, the Avenida Costanera is the only coastal road, and it's less than two miles long. Reaching coastal resorts to the south requires a drive of nearly four hours on an inland highway with views of endless cattle ranches. To the north is a river delta of islands reached only by boat. I just heard a lot of words, but what it translated to in my mind is you're fucking in the city. Yeah, and, okay. and just, he's, yeah, he's lying. So, you know, she asks why his staff thinks he went hiking on the Appalachian Trail, and he's like, I don't know. And then later he's like, in fairness to my staff, I told them I might go hiking on the Appalachian Trail before I boarded that plane. And he said he decided not to return via the Columbia airport to avoid the media. I I don't know how this thing got blown out of proportion, Sanford said. <laughs> so, Gina Smith... You're the governor of a state. You can't just take the fuck off without... Oh, no. ...your spouse or your office staff or your secretary... Your security team. ...or, like, your coffee guy. Yeah. Like, say something to someone. Yeah. Like, yeah. Have a nervous breakdown. That's fine. Take off. Answer but your like, fucking cell phone. Oh, send a text. So, Gina Smith, you did amazing work, and we are so proud of you. Good job, and Gina. hope that everything is great in your life a decade on. This really was incredible. So, with his whereabouts now known and his return to Columbia imminent, it was suddenly clear that the jig was up. Mark Sanford called a press conference for later that day, where he admitted to having an affair with an Argentinian woman who was later identified as Maria Belen Chapor. He had lengthy interviews over the next several days that were genuinely hard to watch. He said that he had crossed lines with other women during his marriage, but this was something different entirely. Quote, this was a whole lot more than a simple affair, he said. This was a love story, a forbidden one, a tragic one. But a love story at the end of the day. Then some emails between them were published. And it, like, really, it was really clear that this was love. This was not just some kind of fling. I fooled around and fell <laughs> in love. Yeah. Uh, um, so, I mean, it's true love. 
Yeah. But that doesn't neglect the fact that you have a wife it does in not. the governor's mansion it in South Carolina. It does not. It was sad Yikes. and human. And honestly, I have a ton of sympathy for everyone involved in this tragic little triangle. Jenny Sanford, it turns out, had known about the affair for several months at this point. She had seen a letter that he'd written. She had confronted him about it. They had gone to marriage counseling. You know, she had basically just tried to get him to stop contacting his mistress, right? Like, like step one, it's all you, these simple ideas you, you have. have to, yeah, step one, you have to, we can save our marriage, but step one is you have to Cut not contract yeah, with you your side chick. Cannot be. And he just, he couldn't do it. So two weeks prior to his uh, trip to the Appalachian Trail, she had asked him for a trial separation because he just couldn't not, I mean, he was in love. I don't know. It sucks. She and the boys moved out of the governor's mansion about a month later. They headed to the family home on Sullivan's Island. She filed for divorce in December. It was finalized in March of 2010. And portions of the agreement, and at least one significant violation of it, have been leaked, presumably by her people to hurt his future congressional campaign when he made a political comeback. First of all, in February of 2013... Mark Sanford snuck onto the Sullivan's Island property, which the divorce agreement forbids him from doing without clear permission from Jenny. So he's a stalker to you? He went to watch the Super Bowl with one of his sons, and he says he tried to call, like, it's weird. Okay, well, that's... Yeah, it's... Okay, I'm going to put down my heckles. Yeah, yeah. Heckles and hackles. Another provision in the settlement includes the line, quote, at any time the children are at Kusaw at his his big property, separate from the Sullivan Island property. So at any time that the children are at Kusaw, the parties agree that no airplanes will be flown at children. That's a weird rule. To my knowledge, this has never been explained publicly. There is a grass strip on the property, apparently. It is also possible that they're talking about radio-controlled model planes, something like that. I One article I saw suggested it could be a typo that should read, no airplanes will be flown by children or with children. I mean, I understand, like, no cake for breakfast. You have to brush your teeth. Like, we have to change our underwear every day. There's some certain rules sure. that you need to set with kids, but yeah, don't, no flying don't, airplanes Don't fly airplanes at them. Do not fly airplanes. I would Adam. think that's just an unspoken parent rule, but I'm not a parent. What do I know? There's this other weird thing where he's got uh, an excavator. Apparently, his hobby, Mark Sanford's hobby, is to go out on his property in this like excavator that you ride in, you drive around, I guess, and just dig holes on the property. He just likes to dig holes. Time team. Is he a no. secret? He's archaeologist. That no. Okay. It just it relaxes him. He unwinds. He just has this big machine that digs a hole. Some people do crosswords. Some people dig holes. Yeah. Okay, so Mark obviously went on to return to Congress after everything blew over, but was (laughs) he was defeated. He won in 2012 and went back in 2013. Anyway, he was defeated in the 2018 primary after his fellow adulterer and current opponent in the 2020 primary endorsed his opponent, his Republican opponent. His relationship with Maria, his Argentinian mistress, continued until 2014 at least. Oh. And she still sticks up for him on social media. Well, that's nice. On occasion. Jenny remarried in 2018 to a Kentucky investment banker, and we wish them all the best. Perfect. Good like, for you, Jenny. Yeah, she 
actually really just seems like a total badass who married below like what is it reacher and settler you know how i met your mother there's a reacher and there's a settler so mark mark was the reacher and she settled for him yeah i mean but there's something to keeping your head held high and not losing your dignity for sure i mean that's a it's a common trope and right i mean there are a lot of second marriages that work out fantastic because of whatever problem in the first marriage oh for sure for sure you married too young yet but yeah it i mean it's what sucks and for for um robert bentley's wife too it's worth a conversation with your spouse that you're having some different kind of feelings that maybe you need to talk about before it goes there yeah yeah i think the the very public nature of it is what really has to suck but in any case, those are the four Republican contenders. Wow. For the White House. Wow. And that is not to say, I mean, Bernie Sanders is divorced. We have a few divorces on the Democratic side, but mm-hmm. not nothing like a 100% ratio. No. What the fuck? No, no. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm even more excited about trashy politics now. My chin was on the floor for <laughs> a lot of that one. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. Hey, you're welcome. I love the end of season... Do what you want to do ones. Podcast no rules. They're fun, yeah. All right. So should we take a break? Let's take a break. Or not take a break. I don't know. It's podcast no rules. So, Alicia, you've been a little Rocky Mountain High this week. So Rocky Mountain High. (laughs) I love him. I love John Denver. I know you do. The story that I thought that I knew Mm -hmm. took a decidedly different turn at the end. I think I kind of knew I mean, some I of this, knew it, but not maybe more than you. Because I, I mean, certainly, I heard a lot of John Denver music when I was little. Because oh, the seventies, it was a it's great a good time. time. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have not been like an active fan, so I think I knew some of the rest of the story. I have said for a long time that the gates of heaven have an angel singing. I think it should be the voice of John Denver. I hope he is there. I hope that we are all judged by our best day and not our worst day. Yeah, that's actually, let us hope that for But the story starts out so happy. Like, it's great until the very end. Also, now that Colorado's legalized marijuana, Rocky Mountain High is like, whoa. Is that what all of the dispensaries are called out there? Because they should be. (laughs) (laughs) Rocky Mountain High was about an asteroid shower, like a meteorite thing that he watched and got called into the fucking tipper gore hearings Mm -hmm. about it which doesn't even land wait wait until she hears puff the magic dragon (laughs) (laughs) little jackie paper loved that rascal puff come on make fun of jackie paper had enough of this all right let's talk Uh, about the trashy divorces of john denver okay okay henry john dutchendorf jr is born. Wow, that's a name. Totally a name. It's a lot of name. Dutchendorf Jr. is born on New Year's Eve. He's a New Year's Eve baby, 1943, which makes him a Capricorn. Uh, uh, oh, I didn't grab those dates for mine. Sorry. Oh, well. It's okay. I'll forget. It's podcast, no rules. Heard of elephants. It's fine. Heard of, there. There you go. John is a New Year's <laughs> Eve baby. Mm-hmm. Makes him a Capricorn and Capricorn men. Sometimes Capricorn men can be seen as aloof or cold. These dudes are only really protecting their heart. Like, Capricorn men are funny because for as much as you love them, God, you want to wring their necks too. They're kind of, they're 
definitely both sides of the scale. He has to protect his heart, has to shield it from the world. Super sensitive, but it may come off a little differently. Super goal-driven, uber-focused. They always keep their eye on the ball. The goat is there. The goat. Are they also stubborn? Like when they get a goal in mind, do they just... Oh, they're going to keep their eye on the ball. Capricorn is an earth sign that for as driven and super focused as they are on the flip side, they can have this lust for life that even if you know them, they're going to, it's going to surprise you. Capricorn men are paradoxes. I'm just summing up that way. They're ruled by Saturn, the God of sowing and seed seasons, harvest time. Okay. Okay. John's a cap. He's a new year's baby. John is born into a military family. When they are stationed in Roswell, New Mexico. This is awesome. With much fanfare in the middle of World War II. John's father is a super famous military pilot, super famous Air Force pilot named Dutch Dutchendorf. Okay. I mean, Dutch isn't I know, his I was real just, name. I was but like, do I, do, have I heard of an Air Force guy named Denver? But obviously that no. is not his name. Dutch okay. Dutchendorf. Like is so famous. He gives Lindbergh a test flight in a B-25 Dutch is the flyer and tester of the plane with all the electronics on it before they drop the nuclear bombs in World War II. Later, he sets like six speed flight records in one day. Like that is a big fucking deal. Air Force pilot. Which is sort of the American dream come true because dad's dad is a farmer from Oklahoma. Right? Yeah. So huge progress. (laughs) So went places. Right. So mom is with dad. The thing I love most about his mom, well, I'm sure his mother was lovely. Uh, We share the same birthday. She's an August 7th birthday, just like me. Okay. All right. So mom is with dad. They're a military family. They move around a lot because Air Force family. John gets a younger brother when he's like six years old. Family's still moving around. And like any military kid will tell you, you'll tell us that too. That shit's hard. And John is kind of a shy kid. Yeah, that doesn't help at all. But John has an awesome grandma with a feather bed who, with the kindest heart, gives John a guitar when he's 11. And so he's learning to play. And sure enough, if you have a guitar and you know how to play, the kids like the new guy at school mm-hmm. a whole lot more. Yeah. Okay. But the family's still moving around and he's kind of awkward. But this old guitar is making him some friends and sort of eases his pathway into the world. And oh, Capricorn dudes. He decides he totally wants to be a folk singer. So like in 1959, when he's 16, he steals the family car, heads on out to L.A. to make his dream happen. (laughs) I mean, these things happen. (laughs) Old Daddy Dutch, having no car to retrieve John because Uh John has stolen the family car, gets a plane from one of his, you know, Air Force buddies and flies out there to bring his kid on home. Expensive. (laughs) Now, military dad is Mm -hmm. not only, like, military famous, but he's also absent a lot because he's into all the stuff. And John's younger brother is interviewed a number of years later and talks about this. Like, dad and I would yell all the time at each other. We'd get in fights. Much more volatile than John, who would just go into his room and play guitar. But dad gets on the plane, flies out to L.A., and apparently, John and Dad have some much-needed bonding time. Really? Like, the brother's mad. I was going to say, that's not what I would, I would expect Dad to get yeah, out there. Yeah, they go and... to SeaWorld. They go to what? fucking Disneyland. And the little brother at home is like, 
what the fuck, man? I'm going to steal a car. You've got to be kidding me. Anyway, John comes on home. That's fascinating. And like, good for dad, because I mean, yeah, like, I'm sorry, when your job involves airplanes, you may not end your day in the same city you started it or even the same state or continent. Like, so John comes on home and he's going to play dutiful son for a while. I'm guessing that was a very long and awkward road trip. (laughs) Well, somebody had to get the plane back. Probably not together. They had to get the car back and the plane back. Interesting. I don't have the details of that research. Sure. Sure. Okay. Old John heads on to Texas Tech University after his high school graduation. He studies architecture. He joins Delta Tau Delta fraternity. DTD. And he's still playing like clubs and frat parties. And by his junior year, he's had enough. And at 20, he tells his mom and dad, I'm going to California. I'm going to be a folk singer. Remember that time I ran away to Los Angeles? I'm going to do it. Doing it again. Joust for real. Okay. (laughs) So John talks about this in later interviews. And he says he got a very harshly worded letter back from his parents, along with $200. And that letter said, when you are tired of this, let us know. We'll get you back in school. And John says later, like it was the greatest gift of love he experienced in his life. They were totally against him doing it, but completely supported him getting it out of his system. Here's 200 bucks. Good luck. When it all falls to crap, we're going to love you and still be here for you. That is really as good as it could be. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So in 1964, John heads on out to California again. He gets a gig with a band, but John Dutchendorf on a marquee is not going to play in the big city. There are a lot of different stories about... Yeah, just ask Bob Dylan about that. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of different stories about how John gets his stage name, but alas, he does, and now he's John Denver. So here's this naive, innocent kid bumbling along in the big city, but he's so fucking genuine and earnest and like, golly gee shucks. Right. And super musically talented. He's super shy with girls. He doesn't really date in high school, doesn't really date in college, but... He's in L.A. and he's making a hundred bucks a week in a band and he has a place to live and things are going great. That's that is a lot of money at the time for especially a kid who. Yeah. You know, he gets signed in 65, but that's a bust. But it's cool because there's this group called the Chad Mitchell Trio. Oh, and they're legit folk singers, but also make kind of satirical music. You made me watch one and it was amazing. Uh, It was so modern. Like, I seriously would have. I would have believed it was something done today in, in yeah. period costumes and artificially oh, black and white. It was about the and KKK, your friendly neighborhood KKK. Liberal, your friendly neighborhood liberal. The KKK had reinvented itself around that time, apparently, or that was the marketing it, pitch for it. So wrong, but he doesn't have the gig yet. Hold on one second. Okay. We're getting there. Okay. So the Chad Mitchell trio, like they're legit folk singers, yeah. but they play kind of punny music. If I have any friends out there who like... Jonathan Colton, mm. Paul and Storm, those kind of satirical, sure, very musically talented, but kind of have a sure. The one uh, I watched was like a barbershop trio sure, approach. That's like the, yeah. uh, obviously they can all play instruments too, but right. but that was just vocals. So Capital Steps, I think, might be another thing in in that vein. There you go. So legit folk singers, but play the satirical music that target politicians and religious leaders and the like, like the KKK. 
And the Chad Mitchell trio needs a, lead, a new lead singer. And they have 200 audition tapes that come in. But John heads on off to New York to audition. He gets the gig. And so now naive military kid is touring the country playing college campuses with this liberal, humorous, folk music band. And his eyes are now kind of opening to maybe exactly how much he still has to learn. But all that learning and everything he does in his life will never kind of diminish his earnestness and childlike wonder at the world. So off the Mitchell trio goes. They drop the Chad part because Chad's no longer, but contractually they keep the name. Sure. And one day in the spring of 1966, they head to Gustavus Adolphus University yeah. in St. Peter. I know someone who went there. Did I say it right? Um, close. Yeah, you come for the divorces, you stay for the pronunciation. Yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> so the Mitchell Trio goes there in the spring of 66 to play a gig. And in the audience, John sees a dark-haired, lovely young co-ed, Anne-Marie Martel. Anne-Marie. What happens? Is born on September 6th, ah. 1946. She is a Virgo baby. Again, uh, Virgos are organizers of the world. They are particular. They're perfectionists. But they're also Earth signs. So you've got Capricorn Earth, Virgo Earth. They're a very good match astrologically, but don't forget about astrology. Sure. Buried alive. Buried alive. There, there we go. go. I was like, what okay. is Earth and Earth? Buried alive. People are going to be happy when we launch the Nostrology Cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Annie has two sisters and a brother. Her dad is a tavern owner. He owns a private bottle club on the banks of the Minnesota River called the Holiday House. He owns this place for like 38 years. And all of the family works there at some point in their life. Annie's such a nice girl. She's just so nice. She's... Tied down with a lot of information, but you see her in interviews, and she's so nice. Okay. Young love. So the Mitchell Trio plays. They, John and Annie, meet after the show, and John ends up writing her a letter like, Hey, if I ever come back through town, can I maybe, like, take you out for a date? And she writes back. It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Then a year later... Never see him again. Yeah. Right. Like, she's... Totally. Whatever. A year later, he comes back through, like, 10 miles away for another gig, and the romance is on. Mm -hmm. Now, Annie says about this time, I was more curious, not smitten. He was very different from anyone I had been around. He seemed to be glamorous to me. Looking back, we were both nerds. <laughs> Good match. Good match. John and Annie are married in the first Lutheran church in St. Peter on June the 9th, 1967. The reception for the wedding is at the Holiday House, Good. her father's place. I was actually, yeah. Okay. So John's still out on tour, and Annie's pulling a gig working at the department store because it's 1967, and that's what you do. And the Mitchell Trio is losing way more money than it's making. But back in 1966... John, at his own expense, had made this Christmas album for his friends and family. Like, as a gift that year. Just personal album for friends. And there's this little song called Babe, I Hate to Go on it. And there's a music guy who's like, that is a horrible title for a great song. <laughs> We're calling this Leaving on a Jet Plane. There you go. There you go. 
which is then recorded, found by Peter, Paul, and Mary, then recorded, and now it's a hit, and John Denver is a in-demand songwriter, sure. and things are turning around. Smash hit. Wait, can we just talk about his dad was a pilot for just a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, though. Like, his first hit is... Leave it on a jet plane. There you go. Cool. So the song is a smash hit. Sure. Troops heading off to Vietnam. Love it. And let me give you just a little bit about how much John has changed in a few short years. The day that his younger brother is shipped off to Vietnam, John is playing at a peace rally. Like, that is the... The Mitchell Trio changes him. Mm-hmm. Worldwide, like, some travel, domestic travel changes him. But I can imagine, to your point, there's a little bit of family contention. We have one son in Vietnam and one son is a fucking hippie playing guitar all over the... Okay. Sure. Well, plenty of plenty of people who were against the war got drafted. Like, I'm not sure that would necessarily mandate conflict with his brother. Conflict with dad, though. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like, he and dad mm-hmm. don't really reconcile for a while. Like, yeah. it's always sort of contentious. But hey... But hey, goopy golly gee whiz, John Denver is not quite the look of the day. Mega nerd. Or the sound. Like, he's got granny glasses and this bull haircut and says gee whiz and far out a lot. And you've got, as his competition, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, as well as the whole psychedelic thing. Oh, and Sonny and Cher. Starting to seed up over in, yeah, San Francisco. And John's a little ahead of this uh, singer-songwriter scene that's going to happen in the early 70s. Like, this is the cusp of it. This is 67, 68, 69. This is all happening. But on the strength of being awesome and leaving on a jet plane, John does get a four-record deal with RCA in 1969. He and Annie are happy. Everything's going great. First two albums filled with wonderful songs, but not selling. And one day, John gets together with his friends Bill and Taffy, who have written half a song called Country Roads. John fills out the other half of the song, and music history is made. Mm -hmm. When he puts it on his third album, and Country Roads tops the charts in 1971, John Denver has landed. His album sells like three million copies in its first months out. Song hits number two on the charts. Meteoric Ride starts here. And probably the downfall of the marriage, too. Interesting. Okay. Success is not the problem. Right. Famous. Famous. There you go. So John and Annie have found some land out in Aspen, Colorado, which is at that time, like we think of it now as very hoity-toity. At the time, it was sort of a Wild West place. It's an old mining town. And in Aspen at the time, you have all kinds of people coming together and making this really like far out community <laughs> there's ski slopes mm-hmm. in the middle of the most beautiful nature ever which is how john gets inspired for so many of his hits rocky mountain high starwood and aspen like it ah uh, okay skiing on a jet plane <laughs> john and annie build a beautiful home and this is where john comes to rest and relax which there isn't a lot of because dude's on fire. Right. Now, here's the thing. The public love John Denver. He is uh, on camera. On He presents this just kind of super chill. Whiz, far yeah. out goofiness. And I sing to the mountains. And mm-hmm. fans love him. 
But the press of the day and other rock musicians are like, what the fuck, dude? You wear granny glasses. Like, what? And his manager is like, hey, I think TV may be the place for you. So let's go ahead and see how you do. Like, you're going to be a big star, kid, but it may not be in the conventional way. And the BBC sets him up for a six-episode special. It's like six-episode variety hour thing, which, oh my God, has costumes and skits and all kinds of craziness. So they are trying to directly compete with, like, Sonny and Cher. Oh, absolutely. Okay, interesting. For sure. But it's the BBC. Right. They're not doing this in America. It's the BBC, and they're like, right. it's ratings, great. Yeah. If not, it's yeah. still good. It's the BBC. Put this American nerd on TV and see what happens. Right? Yeah. They aren't quite as ratings obsessed, or in 1971 or two, not quite as ratings obsessed as America is. And the show turns out to be a fucking hit. So now America's like, oh, yeah. Also on the show is when he develops his little, it's far out catchphrase. (laughs) Far out, man. Okay. By 1973, he's on television specials. His greatest hits album comes out in 73, too. It sells 10 million copies in six months. 10 million. Doesn't even make sense. He is living all of the dreams. And he's like four years into his career, though, at this point? Nine. He started in 64. Is when he first landed in L.A. Okay. Like, he's worked hard. No, I I get it. I just, like, I feel like Elton John also put out, like, Elton John's greatest hits also came out, like, five years into his being famous. That's what, like, early on, I feel like maybe it still happens. I don't know. But if you get picked up and get noticed, everything you've done in your... You suddenly have a lot of hits. That's... Very quickly. He's living all of his dreams. Annie's at home, tending hearth and home and lonely. And, like, I'm not sure if this is kind of what I signed up for. And they're fighting a lot. Have they had any babies? No, he's sterile. Oh. They want kids and he can't Um, have kids. Oh, poor guy. And poor her. And poor her. So, it looks like it's hitting the rocks. And, like, by 1974, they're thinking about separating and they have a fight one day. And come to some sort of, I'm paraphrasing from listening to 12 interviews of both of them talk about this but they have a fight one day and kind of get it resolved enough and john's like hey i'm gonna go out and ski she's like okay whatever he comes back 30 minutes later having written annie's song i mean night in a forest and mountain (laughs) and springtime and walk in the rain and if there's a truer song ever written about love i would love to know it it's a beautiful song hmm Fill up my senses. Aw. Okay, so John Denver's talking about it. Like, he goes to ski just to burn off steam. Oh, sure, sure. Just to burn off steam. And he's on the ski lift. No, and and then Big Magic hits. Big Magic. He's probably high. I don't know. But he's on the ski lift. And he's, like, super aware of all the images. And he's seeing the snow and the mountains and the view and the people and the blah, blah, blah. And this is what he says that, okay. I haven't cried in a long time. He says, all of the pictures merged. And then what I was left with was Annie. That song was the embodiment of all the love I felt at the time. Annie, on the opposite hand, says, I've heard it in elevators. My daughter played it at her wedding. People carry that song with them. It is a beautiful gift. Annie's song, naturally, is a hit. 
and the rise just keeps getting higher and higher from there. And like John Denver is really good for a weary and tired America. Watergate and the Vietnam War and gas shortages and the civil brag. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Denver is the bomb that soothes my soul. And I can imagine that was true in 1975 as well. Okay. Fans love him. The press does not. He is knocked around for his image. He actually ends up winning because he's having a little success on the country music charts. But the country music people are pissed because he's not from Nashville. He's not one of them. But he gets nominated for Entertainer of the Year at the CMAs in 1975, which is like the biggest fucking deal award they have. Yeah, for sure. This is rotten. Charlie Rich is awarding the award and Entertainer of the Year and out drops John Denver's name and he picks it up and reads it and sets the paper on fire as he's reading out John Denver's name. Now, let me tell you the flip side of the situation. John Denver's on tour in Australia. He's only piped in via satellite. So he doesn't see any of this happening. He's like... Golly gee shucks, I can't believe I just won Entertainer of the Year Award. While Nashville's literally setting him on fire. Yikes. On it was it was a crass thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is a take on his ego, as you can imagine, and it sucks. And John, even as a shy kid, would go into his room and play guitar. Like he definitely has periods of depression. But he's also playing to 20,000 people a night. And he says, hey, after you make love to 20,000 people a night, you don't go home alone. So definitely some cheating uh, happening. He is blown away by the girls and the trappings of fame. I'm sure. And Annie is not real happy. But, right, we have Annie's song. They're about to split again. They end up reconciling. They adopt two kids. Because he's sterile, but the dream is to have kids. Sure. Things are happy enough for a while. He is getting involved in all kinds of causes. He rides out with Jacques Cousteau and donates all of the proceeds of his song Calypso to Cousteau's nonprofit. He campaigns for Jimmy Carter. He's supporting international hunger relief and civil rights causes and environmentalist stuff. He's doing all this good in his personal life. And he is kind of one of the first musicians that begins using his fame for activism. So when we look at the eighties and Bono and sting and hell, like the nineties, our hometown girls, the Indigo girls who do all kinds of great stuff with causes like John Denver was kind of the leader of that. Also, he sets up a foundation called Windstar, which is this like scientific research foundation that's doing all this cutting edge science shit with solar and wind power, like in the early mid 1970s. Hmm. They have symposiums where like thousands of people come to learn about how do we make wind power? How do we make right. solar? Like, dude's a visionary. Oh, sorry. Totally makes friends with fucking Jim Henson and John Denver guest stars on The Muppet I, Show. I do recall this, yeah. And also makes two specials with The Muppets, The Muppet Christmas and Rocky Mountain Holiday. Oh, and if you can do TV, fine, then film wants you too. So John Denver made Oh God with George Burns. And, <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. I, not until you just said it, but yeah. Okay, but we're here for the trashy divorce. And in the early 80s, he's fading out. 
actually, we're here for the trashy divorce, but y'all, trashy tidbits this week on Patreon is going to be lit. There's so much I didn't include in here, and this would be a three-hour episode, but it's not. Okay. In the early 80s, he's fading out. He's not quite as popular. He hasn't had a hit in a while. And John's dad passes away in March of 1982. And this hits John pretty deeply. As an adult, John and his father grew much closer. His dad actually teaches him how to fly. Oh, cool. Oh, well, wait, that's how he died, so. Well, John becomes an accomplished pilot. Sure. And his dad's even like, I couldn't get him in a plane when he was a kid. But I think John, okay, John also joined a cult, like Est, E-S-T, Est. Don't know it. He joined a cult and he may have called his dad, but he sought a lot of spiritual different paths in the 70s because of the... As people did. Fame and the depression and the Mm -hmm. stresses at home and blah. Okay. But dad dies. Three months after dad passes away, June 9th, their 15th wedding anniversary, Annie asks for divorce. Yikes. Like on their anniversary? On their anniversary. Annie says it was complicated. The pressures in that lifestyle are enormous. I didn't have the maturity. He didn't have the maturity either. We didn't know how to deal with each other in a way that we could perhaps deal with each other now. There was hurt and anger and disappointment. We were young. We didn't know how to talk about these things. John says in the last four or five, six years, we had drifted away and definitely away from one another. We were not spending time together. And then when we could spend time together, that inflexibility, when we got back together to integrate the other's life into our own, just think about it. He's touring on the road. She's at home. She's got kids and carpool Mm -hmm. and lunches and friends and book clubs and laundry. And all. so He says, we had different interests, different friends. We had very little in common. Rebound. Annie says, to her, his behavior was hurtful and grounded in denial. He was not dealing with the problems that were going on right in front of his face. All of his cheating, he attempted to rationalize that conduct. But the right and the wrong of it eventually does end up bugging him, hence the est cultish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They divorce after 15 years of marriage. John in his autobiography does say, and I have his autobiography link. He reads it and it's it, it's awesome to hear him until he gets to the shitty parts of it. But he says he once showed up at Annie's house with a chainsaw ready to car- carve up their bed. Oh, well, it, the okay, that could have been worse. I know. I've just told a tremendously great story that everybody feels happy and wants to sing with the Muppets, but apparently he had a very dark side. Depending on the view of who you're looking at when you research him, it, everybody has a dark side. It was a dark and stormy night. Here's where it turns. John says, before I knew it, I had her on the kitchen counter and my hands were around her throat and I stopped. I had almost lost control, but I didn't. Actually, it sounds like he really had lost control. I think when he left his home with a chainsaw and headed for where she was, he had lost control. It's good he didn't lose control more than he had, but that... The dude does not take the end of the marriage super well. Sounds like... It's pretty bad. He's pretty depressed. He's drinking a lot. 
He's having some issues with anger, clearly. But hope springs eternal. John falls in love again with an Australian actress-musician named Cassandra Delaney. They get married in August of 1988 after dating like two and a half years. She settles right on into his Aspen home. And what? Here comes a miracle baby. Really? That they said that he could never have in May of 1989. Is she significantly younger than he is? 20 years difference between these okay. two. Okay. Well, good for him. This is where it gets bad. So the band-aid of John Denver being a far out guy is about to get ripped off. I have added in the link where Cassandra tells her story from the March 1996 issue of the Australian Woman's Weekly, where she is apparently no longer willing to cover up what he is like to protect his image. She tells of bullying, threats, jealousy, and heavy drinking that destroyed them, and of the dramatic $3.3 million custody fight for their child. She brands him a control freak. Cassie wistfully relives her early days with John. I was falling in love with a spiritual man who was on the same path as me, someone who had a good heart. We had some good years together, but I should have seen the signs of how he treated everyone else. John had no friends and constantly upset his staff. Most of his secretaries were often in tears and constantly leaving. He plays at the character John Denver, but there's another person there. And that's who John always was and really is. As the relationship falls apart, Cassie doesn't have any idea what to do. She felt it would be disloyal to confide in anybody about their problems, so she remained silent. Quote, I went into shock and I think I was in denial for a long time. I wanted to make it work and I didn't want anybody to know that I felt that I'd made a mistake. That seems like a very normal response. And like other women, I thought I could change my man through love and compassion. It took me a long time to finally admit that this was abuse and it wasn't right and that I actually deserved to be loved unconditionally. Yeah, that's too bad. And honestly, finding someone who is 20 years younger means they've got 20 years less experience dealing with interpersonal shit. That's it. So the baby's born and Cassie wants to stay home and be a full-time mom. And John's like, nope, get a full-time nanny. I need you with me on the road. So, oh, I'm sorry. Let me mention Cassie, born January 7th. She is a Capricorn baby as well. So he has moved from a double earth buried alive to a double earth buried alive with his own sign. Great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cassie says, I took care of him on the road. When our daughter came along, he lost control of me and saw me sharing my love with her. I think when man and a woman have a child... If the man is not mature enough, and that's crazy because John's over 50, the relationship can fall apart. John became jealous. Nothing I did was right. Well, this sounds horrible. It's horrible. John demands a divorce without any prior discussion. Cassie says, he just made up his mind one day and said, I want a divorce and I don't want you in my house. Oh, my God. So she and the kid moved to the guest house. Mm Mm-hmm. Cassie says, once he decided that it didn't work for him anymore, he could not go back on that decision because his ego took over. He didn't have the compassion to say, we need to find a way to make this work. He wasn't willing to do that, which is ex- was extremely disappointing because I wanted to make it work. He puts in a restraining order against Cassie, saying she's a threat. Wow, I... I knew about the violence with his first wife. I did not know that this guy's just... 
just an asshole toward the end there, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the... Mm, Okay. Sorry to burst your bubble as somebody no, you so bad. genuinely uh, care about. The last thing, like this is, this is so cruel. He demanded that I get a lawyer and I had no other choice because he threatened that he was going to take my daughter away from me and watch me, quote, walk away and crumble to the ground with nothing. Those were his words and he threatened us with them constantly. He's a very, very bitter man yeah. and an angry man. Wow. Was he just so bad at interpersonal stuff that ultimately, like at the end, he just had paid staff because he could trust the paycheck to... Well, you're looking at a dude who has some pretty significant problems. This is the last bit from this piece. Cassie uh, recalls John's nightly drinking sessions. If you're getting drunk every night, there's got to be a problem. She says, I don't think anybody's ever said no to John. He became a star, a really big star quite early on before he really matured as a man. He's very intimidating. Everybody walks on eggshells around him, but he didn't intimidate me. I think that's what he saw in me and what he loved in me. I was able to be myself and I wasn't overawed by him. Cassie and John separate in 1991. They're divorced in 1993. To give the other side of the story, John Denver later recalls that before our short-lived marriage ended in divorce, she managed to make a fool of me from one end of the valley to the other. <laughs> wow, what a guy. Okay, but things are going kind of shitty. And you think? after, yeah, this divorce, he and Annie do become better friends. Okay. Their bitterness, like... Sure. They're friends by the time he dies. I get... I, he's... They're co-parents of the kids they adopted, right? Yep. Okay. And she's never quoted saying anything mean about him. But you can, after hearing that, maybe imagine what her life might have been like. And John isn't doing so good. In 1993, he pleads guilty to a drunk driving charge. While still on probation, he's busted in 1994 again for a DUI when he crashes his Porsche into a tree. Yikes. In 1996, the FAA takes his license because of his failure to abstain yeah. from the drink. Yeah, I would say two DUIs is a good which indication. was a condition of his DUIs, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it more tragic that John, who was not legally permitted to technically fly at the time, was flying one of his new test planes on October 12th, 1997, on a cloudless day in Monterey Bay. That test plane runs out of fuel in one tank and John is not able to switch over to the reserve engine tank and the plane crashes into the sea and John is killed instantly. And those are the trashy divorces of John Denver. Sometimes a good guy, sometimes a bad guy, most definitely a human guy who fucked up a lot. But while he was doing it, he made some beautiful music. And now that my hero is crushed in an entirely different way, <laughs> at least personally, I can still find peace and love balm in his music, which is probably the truest thing about him. He has a great quote, and I wholeheartedly agree. Music does bring people together. It allows us to experience the same emotions. People everywhere are the same in heart and spirit. No matter what language we speak, what color we are, the form of our politics, or the expression of our love and our faith, music proves we are the same and i will leave you with the last lines of one of his early songs the eagle and the hawk and i think it sums up his story in a lovely way come dance with the west wind and touch on the mountaintops sail over the canyons 
up to the stars and reach for the heavens and hope for the future and all that we can be, not what we are. Aspirational. And all that we can be, but not what we are. (sighs) Okay. Okay. My glasses are off. (laughs) Sorry, y'all. For all y'all been happy, I haven't cried in a while. Sorry. JD. Most people don't know that um, I love him. the capital of Colorado is actually John Denver Polis. Dukendorfer? What? What's his real name? Dutchendorf. Dutchendorf? They just call it Denver because it's easier to put on a marquee. <laughs> Thanks for trying to make me laugh. I'm okay. I didn't know. I, I... You said that you were probably going to cry for this one. No, nah, his music is Love Bomb. And all that we can be, yeah. but not what we are. Yeah. I think his message is still important. Sounds like he was... He is my love bomb in 2019, sure. just like he was love bomb in 1975. Yeah. And his trash cans go... I'm sorry, we didn't rate your trash cans individually. 2020 of them. Perfect. His trash cans go, I want to give John Denver a whole bunch of them, like a mountain full sure. of trash cans. Sure. But they're all recyclable. And decompose and turn into trees and lakes and fish and eagles. That's lovely. Compostable trash cans. A whole mountain full of trash cans that compost into beautiful, recyclable nature. Welcome to our comedy podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to go from here. Well, thank you, Alicia. That was... For bringing everybody down at the end of season three. It was emotional. In a good way. I love John Denver. I know you do. I love John Denver, and I really do all hope that we're judged by our best day and not our worst day. Because I don't think I knew he'd. That's all some pretty terrible no it's behavior horrible. towards the people that love you. Yeah, yeah. But welcome to trashy divorces. Yeah, I didn't gloss that one over at all. Mm-mm. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Think you can top that? Don't forget to send us your. Trashy Divorces for our Bridge Over Trashy Divorces season break next week. We will come back with season four to you on September 29th. And oh, it's a good one. (sighs) Oh, okay. I got to look. I'm going to look to the future. Okay. Not to the past. Look to the future. Yeah. Season four coming back at you September 29th. Yep. Send your Trashy Divorces to trashydivorces at gmail.com we've received several because we put a call out on patreon and they are amazing so no pressure i mean i don't say that to pressure you because every amazing story is amazing in its own way so like we can't wait to hear yours we can't wait to hear your trashy divorce yeah in the meantime until we talk to you again with the launch of season four keep it trashy keep it trashy cheers everybody bye bye And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. 
and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.